Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we have Colin Gray. Colin's an assistant professor in computer graphics technology department in the Purdue Polytechnic Institute. Colin's also the program lead for user experience design program, and we're excited to have him here today. So welcome, Colin. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be here today. You know, I think the first thing we have to do is kind of uh, break down that title. Um, there's a lot of title there. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, well, let's talk with <laughs> about the um, user experience yeah. and stuff, because uh, I, I know that uh, some of the abbreviations of that uh, I had to look up with <laughs> before we met. And so could you explain why, what you mean when you say something about a user experience design? Absolutely. So user experience is a term that's only really been commonly used for the last uh, 10 to 15 years or so as a job title. But the ideas behind it go back much, much further. Um, and so really it comes back to this merging of computer scientists and psychologists in the 1970s when they realized everyday people were going to have to be using um, these computer systems that used to just be used by people that were, you know, on the thin client back in the server room. And as soon as that realization sort of came about, um, this brand new field of human computer interaction emerged and it became a really formal discipline in the in the 1980s. But most people don't know about it uh, because um, it might be one course that a computer scientist takes um, during their undergraduate career. And historically, there have only been graduate degree programs in the area. Um, and so that changed in 2015 when Purdue started one of the first undergraduate programs in user experience design in the nation. And um, we now have over 150 students on campus. And our goal is pretty simple. It's to build digital systems with the user's needs at the center of the process rather than on the outskirts. And to really think deeply about not just can somebody do something, but is it a pleasurable experience? Is it something that they want to do over and over again? Um, and uh, that really changes the equation pretty substantially. So our students focus on everything from understanding users' needs through interviews, through observations, through other forms of research, uh, to building all sorts of different kinds of prototypes, um, whether it be sketches on the back of a napkin, or whether it be a fully blown um, interactive website, uh, or even a physical computing device that exists in the real world. Um, and then we train students on how to evaluate those prototypes to make sure that it really did meet, meet the user needs that we identified in the first place, and um, that it's usable and safe to use. What type of employer would, if I was going into that career, what type of employer would I be looking for to, to hire me? You will find UX designers in pretty much every industry um, once you start looking. Um, it's, and it's one of the fastest growing job titles, um, actually, over the last five years. Uh, but, you know, people have been employed in UX type roles for a really long time. Sometimes they were called usability engineers. Sometimes they were taking on more of like a human factors role, focusing on ergonomics. Um, sometimes they were computer scientists or developers themselves, but they also knew that they, about this sort of user angle of things. Um, so you'll find different flavors of user research, user experience, um, and evaluation roles um, across a range of industries, whether they make physical or digital products. Okay. And this is all housed under the computer graphics technology department. That is correct. Um, we uh, run an interesting sort of group of majors um, within computer graphics. Um, so um, 
originally computer graphics started out as engineering graphics and it spun off, um, I think in the 1970s. I need to look back at my history to make sure I'm getting it right. But it was basically that moment where CAD systems started to take over engineering. And so that's certainly still in the DNA of computer graphics technology. Um, but we have a very large entertainment graphics um, division that focuses on uh, games and animation work. Uh, we have people that are doing data visualization work, um, obviously our user experience design program, and the intersection of um, gra computer graphics and industry. So thinking about product lifecycle management, virtual product integration, those kinds of issues. So we, we get to sit um, in normal non-COVID times, we get to sit with lots of really interesting faculty and work with lots of interesting students at a, the range and intersections of all those different spaces. Well, speaking of the COVID times, what's has there been like an immediate impact right now on this field with everything kind of overnight, overnight it seems like, going virtual? I think it's a little bit too soon to say. Um, many tech companies have moved to pretty liberal work at home policies. Um, and so we're not seeing any dramatic impact in terms of, you know, people getting laid off in the tech industry, uh, but we're, we're definitely seeing new patterns of work emerge. And so I think that that actually represents an opportunity for the field rather than a sort of distraction from it. Uh, so we're becoming much more immersed in our homes. I mean, I'm, I'm working in my home, I've worked in my home way more than I ever intended to. And so suddenly we're starting to want to augment those homes with smarter technology. If we're gonna be around it all the time, it might as well do good stuff for us. And so that's a whole new emerging space of internet of things at the intersection of domestic technologies. Um, and then of course we need all new kinds of support to make sure that we can work at home effectively. And so, you know, you've seen platforms like WebEx and Zoom get much, much more robust over the last six months because suddenly a lot of development dollars are flowing in and lots of interesting new tools are coming on board to help people do this work better as well. So I think it's an exciting time, even though it's a, a frustrating time uh, to really see where there are some opportunities for innovation. I, I agree with both the exciting and frustrating, but also I, I think when you start talking about user experience side of things, that's something that most people don't realize. I mean, it's everything in that program, everything in that on that website, it's been engineered. It's been designed to manipulate you into doing something or to make it easier for you to do something. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> and that's the real entry point into, into dark patterns because, you know, all of this capability to really understand a user's needs deeply and maybe even better than they can explain it themselves is a tool. And you can use that tool for good and you can design the best systems ever that people just love to use. You can take that, take that same knowledge and make the tool so addictive that they can't put it down or so um, engineered in terms of how people are manipulated through the product lifecycle that they get what they need done, but they end up spending more money than they intended. And so, you know, dark patterns are is really describes these moments where we take all that knowledge about the user and about human psychology and about how we interact in social situations and using it to benefit the shareholder or the stakeholder disproportionately to the user. There's always going to have to be a balance, but it's that disproportionate value that that really starts to make the difference. So, well, Sarah, I'm sorry, I about stepped on you. <laughs> No, I, I'm still thinking of my question. Oh, oh man, I have so many. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's break down the the dark patterns first, because we said that we start talking about. But what exact? How how would you define dark patterns? Then what are a couple examples that would fit under that? 
Yeah, so um, this notion of dark patterns uh, was coined by a practitioner in the United Kingdom named Harry Brignall in about 2010. And he's not just a practitioner, he's still doing really great work, but he, he did a PhD in cognitive psych as well. So he knows that cognition side of the world, but he also really understands the, the practical realities of UX practitioners and um, how those are experienced by, by everyone as those digital tools get pushed out to the world. And so he identified dark patterns as spaces where designers use their knowledge of human psychology to implement deceptive techniques that are not meant to really be detected by the user. Um, they're meant to be tricky. They're meant to be subterfuge, sort of underneath the ground um, that aren't in the user's best interest, but they do benefit the shareholder. And so, you know, it could be something as simple as, let's see if we can get the user to spend a little bit more money by sneaking something into their shopping cart ahead of time. And hopefully, if they don't notice, they'll just pay that extra money. And if they do notice, hopefully they'll like that product so much that they'll keep it in there. Oh my so, God. you know, this is actually a really common technique. It's been used for over a decade. It's not illegal, believe it or not, yeah. um, in digital systems, even though if you imagine, you know, somebody sh sneaking something into your shopping cart at the grocery store, that would be a little bit terrifying, actually. But in an online system, we're totally okay with this. Um, <laughs> or we're not okay with it, but we're used to it. We're used to having to monitor for all these kinds of behaviors. Um, so there are a lot of examples in e-commerce where you know, you're already knowing that you're spending money. And so th these are ways to trick you into not understanding the, the agreement that you're about to make when you're, when you're checking out or through that shop shopping experience. And there are a lot of dark patterns specifically focused on, on e-commerce. The other type, of the other main um, sort of type of dark patterns are patterns that take advantage of the ways that we perceive our world visually and interactively. And so there's actually an example that came out a couple of years ago during the Super Bowl. It was um, an, an Asian company where they put a, um, the image of a hair on top of an advertisement on Instagram. And of course, everyone thought that it was a hair. And so what do you do? You wanna brush that hair away to get it out of your field of view. And in the process, you're, you're very likely to, to actually end up liking the photo through that unintentional interaction. Okay. And so it produced higher engagement numbers that were totally false. It was just people trying to like get the hair off of their device that was never there to begin with. Uh, but it actually produced a set of copycats of other people trying this technique uh, to first get people's attention more than they might have otherwise, and then to have the possibility of producing this extra interaction. Um, another common example that we see in, in gaming, especially on mobile devices, where, you know, you, there might be a button to start a level. And then when you get done, there's an option and you, and you fail the level, there's an option to replay a level or to use a boost or something like that within the game. And what you'll often find, and I'll, I'll show, show it to you on my phone, is if you have your thumb in a certain spot on the side of the, on the, side of the screen, you're very likely to press it at that same target naturally all the time. And so they put something in the space so that you'll use up a boost. Well, if you use up your boost, then you'll have to buy more boosts. There's some in-game currency, another dark pattern that's fueling money under that system in ways that you probably didn't intend to, uh, but they're, they're fueling off of that dopamine release that you get when you engage in gameplay. And then they're wanting you to keep on engaging in that behavior. And if you can make it an automatic behavior, even better. Oh, wow. Would things like, um, I know my back was sore last week and someone had told me, oh, use a heating pad. 
And all of a sudden, in my social media feed, I see uh, advertisements for heating pads. Yes. And I'm like, I have never seen that in my life. But someone told me one time last week, use a heating pad. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we got a heating pad. I, I could do that. Now I'm seeing advertisements for it out of the blue. Is <laughs> that fault? Yeah. I know. I'll, I'll be talking to my kids about something. And then all of a sudden, the next time I go in in my search history, and I've never typed anything like that. And it's showing me all these things. So is that the yeah, so of this? So data privacy is a little bit of a larger issue. It definitely does intersect with the world of dark patterns. Um, but there's this creep factor that a lot of yeah. people in the data privacy community have talked about where companies have so much information on us and they're constantly collecting and refining that information that they can predictively suggest lots of things to you. And it comes really in two flavors and neither of these are directly dark patterns, but dark patterns does play a role as well. So one, one form is just the fact that they have very sophisticated models to track the kinds of needs that people have. And they've categorized you already. They probably categorized you 50 or 60 different ways. And that's the way that advertisements are presented to you on the best of days, which is already sort of creepy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you, and, it, and in a lot of platforms, you can see how you're categorized. So like on Facebook, they call these affinity groups and you can see what affinity groups you've been attached to automatically without you ever determining that. Um, so that's a very common way for us to get advertisements and they will predictively know that, well, you know, Colin's the kind of person who maybe, um, you know, went on a walk this past weekend. And so maybe that would be a great time to um, give him an idea of like some hiking trails that are around the, around the area. And so they can stitch those two things together and they can do that very, very easily in ways that seem surprising to us, but are actually very predictable. That's one form. Um, the other form is um, data mining across multiple platforms. And this is probably the most problematic area right now. Um, and a number of, of vendors are actually trying to shut some of this down. And so whenever you go to a website, you're probably being tracked by three, four or five different platforms oh. that know that you're there, even though you're not attending, you're looking at anything on the site that is relevant to them. Um, this is a very common method of ad tracking. It's very common on mobile device ecosystems as well. And so those vendors have access to your data across all those different experiences that you're having. And so they can create more sophisticated models, but they can also create advertisements that are more likely to travel with you across multiple experiences. Both of those things put together feel very creepy and they feel like, oh, they must be listening in on everything that we're saying, even though they aren't. But they have enough information otherwise that they can actually do really sophisticated work uh, to, to target us and try to get us to spend money. Now, let me tie that back into the dark patterns piece because there is a dark, there is a dark patterns um, crossover here. So, you know, those annoying banners that show up every time you go to a website that's like, do you want to accept our cookies? Do you, yes. Are you okay with us taking data away from you? Well, a lot of that ha happened in the wake of GDPR, the, the general data protection rule in the European Union. Um, and essentially anybody worldwide that caters to European Union customers has to provide that guidance um, about how their data is being used. And so we're seeing it in the United States as well. So what happens is, you know, you look at those banners, you don't want to look at all the fine print, you just want to look at the darn website. That's all you want to do. So you press the easiest button, probably the brightest button, which is normally the accept button, and suddenly you've given them all the rights to your data that we just talked about. Oh. And um, so in those moments where we're ignoring our, our own self-interest, uh, we're actually giving away lots of our data 
in perpetuity to these other vendors. Now, the challenge is that dark patterns, um, there's been a lot of research on dark patterns in the wake of GDPR. And what they found in a study that just came out in May, um, there were three different sort of characteristics of the GDPR regulation. And um, they looked across over 500 sites um, catering to European Union users, many of which we use as well. And 90% of them had problematic dark patterns impacting one of those three categories. Oh, wow. So, so in, in the service of following GDPR, they actually introduced all sorts of new manipulation so that you were more likely to give away your data by pre-selecting, by um, only showing an accept button and not a reject button, by giving you diminished service if you pick the wrong option. Um, all sorts of different techniques that are really well known, but they're being used now to impact how much control you have over your data. Wow. So how does someone protect themselves from this That's, type of thing? That was exactly what I was going to ask. What can I do as a consumer? <laughs> this, is, this is a huge issue. Yeah, no, the, the awareness is one thing, and it's, it's scary and creepy and frustrating mm -hmm. all at once. Um, but... So like, uh, there are two paths. One is being aware is huge. And so just knowing that people have this information about you and they are trying to direct you using these known principles of psychology is really powerful for us as consumers. Because as soon as we can label a behavior, we can start to um, track ourselves in relation to those behaviors. I would be surprised if tonight when you start using a digital device and something happens, you'll, you're not going to connect the dots. You know. Um, and so there was actually another study that came out in relation to dark patterns on mobile applications that came out also in April or May. And I think it was about a third higher, the likelihood of people identifying dark patterns in play once they knew that it was a thing that people could employ in these digital systems. So that doesn't do anything about it, but at least it lets you know, oh, I should be a little bit more wary because somebody's trying to manipulate my behavior right now. Okay. Um, and in fact, that even helps us when we think about engaging in digital systems more broadly. Um, I was talking to um, some colleagues this summer who were really struggling to get out of the doom scrolling on Twitter because, you know, that's sort of what we're doing. We're doom scrolling because it's, you know, it's the apocalypse. Um, and so how do you sort of break out of those behaviors? And one of the things that really helped him was the realization that if you if you think about the designers of Twitter and you realize, oh, those people are explicitly to design this product to be too too difficult to, to put down. They just want you to keep on scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You become a little bit more aware of your own power in that moment to say, I know this is being designed to control me and I'm gonna to choose to not let it control me. And here's the ways that I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna put some fences around my screen time. Um, I'm going to identify some other triggers to know that I've had enough. So it, it lets us exercise our agency in those moments a little bit more. So that's one thing that we can do. Um, is, is really become more aware. The other piece is really thinking about this on a public policy level. Um, and that's something that feels very distant. Like even to me, I'm not a public policy expert, but I'm starting to work more closely with people that are in the legal community. Um, and so thinking about this as something that the government can say, no, that's inappropriate. That's, problem that's a problematic behavior is another way for us to guard against these behaviors. Um, so GDPR was certainly one way that the EU is trying to control these behaviors, but it's going to take years and years and years in the courts to actually work out which specific dark patterns are problematic and which ones are okay. And that's going to, so that's going to be an ongoing fight. 
in the United States, we're just starting that through a protection act that was just that just went into effect out in California, um, July 1st of 2020. And that's going to start the kickstart the process in the United States, because obviously California has a decent sized population. They're going to be able to demand certain things out of tech products in a way that hopefully will make these systems a little bit more equitable for for all of us. Uh. How, that's that's a good point too. How what is the role of equity in dark patterns? And that might be too broad of a of a question to ask, but it's I don't know. I don't I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great it's a great question. Um, and so this goes back to that using the knowledge of people against them. And so there are some things that we can think of from an equity and inclusion lens. Um, we know that, for instance. Um, people with lower vision generally tend to be older adults that are more easy, easily manipulated in certain ways. And so as soon as you know certain things about those, those individuals, you might be able to map dark patterns explicitly to take advantage of them or to choose to provide more equitable experiences. Um, we also know that, for instance, low-income people, and especially the intersection of low-income people and people of color, are likely to have um, lower tech lower tech capabilities um, in terms of the devices that they own. Um, they're often, they tend to be cheaper devices because lower income, and they tend to um, also have lower um, capabilities built in with them. And so we can also detect that as part of um, how we serve out a website. And we might choose to employ certain dark patterns to impact people in ways that um, disproportionately represent the challenges that that community faces. Um, so, you know, for instance, thinking about the digital equivalent of the physical payday loan scheme, which disproportionately impacts people, um, people in lower income communities. We can obviously see those impacts in digital spaces as well. Um, one final example of that might be thinking of, um, you know, your, your favorite grandmother who got really addicted to Farmville a decade ago when, you know, gaming was huge on Facebook and may have even spent hundreds of dollars on credits. Mm -hmm because that game got so addictive. That's just another form of dark patterns in play. And they knew exactly who their audience was, right? Um, and so if we think of this through an inclusivity lens, some of it is just giving users agency in general to be able to say, no, I get to make my own decisions about how I spend my time and how I spend my money. But also we have to, I think, pay attention to people who are disproportionately more likely to be impacted and may have lower digital literacy to actually know what's happening to them. So it sounds like your first step is awareness. Awareness is huge. Yeah. Wow. So if, I mean, uh, to me, this is, it, it's a really cool field. I mean, to be able to talk about, because there's, there's so much going on in it. And there's, there's so many fields in what you're doing. It's, just, it's, I mean, with your psychology and then the computer side, and there's a lot there. What, if, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to be someone who, worked on that either for good or bad um <laughs> what what background would i need to look at so like a high school student what should i start looking at now if i want to down the road work in this field well so you know patterns is a big concept and so you need lots of friends to come along with you on the ride um and so you know having a, a psychology getting a psychology degree or um you know having some psychology knowledge is is really really important understand how our visual perception works, how we tend to behave in groups, 
uh, what kinds of proof and knowledge force us to do things or encourage us to do things. Um, but, you know, the public policy side, having people in government and in law is also super important um, to know how do you actually legislate these things out of existence and how do you define it narrowly enough that it can be legislated against. So that's super important. Obviously, you know, my main impact is sort of thinking at it from a user experience designer perspective, because those are the students that I get to train. And so we actually just went over this in class this morning with our some of our graduate students. Um, and really thinking through knowing that all these dark patterns exist um, and knowing that in any moment you can shift a design decision to be more evil or more just. Mm -hmm. um, how do you become aware of those moments? And then how do you express those to the rest of your team so that you can actually do something about it? And this is the huge challenge because you are fighting against the core of capitalism when you do that. Because, you know, every company wants to make more money. And we're not saying nobody can make money ever, but it is trying to bring that balance back into the equation to say, um, yes, you can persuade people to do something, but people should know that they are being persuaded to do something as well. And they should know that they, that they have a choice. Um, and so it's the people across that cross section that really make a big difference. Um, and actually one of the projects that I'm, I'm most fascinated by is one that we just put out a preprint today from this work. Um, it's a collaboration that's been going on for almost a year with um, friends at um, institu an institute in France. And it's a collection of computer scientists, data privacy experts, and legal scholars. And then I add the design and HCI expertise. And we've had conversations um, at seven in the morning um, almost every week um, this year. And we just put out a paper uh, that sort of discusses the findings at the intersection of all of those disciplines. Um, and so when, when I talk to prospective students, people that are in high school, which I do pretty frequently in my role, um, you know, I encourage them to always look for the fields that don't exist yet and to look for the new framings of disciplines that require you to have friends with other different forms of disciplinary expertise, because that's the future. Um, there are aspects of all of our respective fields that can be automated away, but the intersections and synergies among those fields, that's where all the magic happens. I like that. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Sounds like, uh, regardless, an ethics class is going to be involved. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. Moral, moral ethics and moral philosophy is definitely still a really important building block to even understanding what kinds of principles are being violated. We experience things where it's like, oh, that was a real jerk who created that. Mm -hmm. That was really inequitable. That wasn't very thoughtful or caring. Um, and it takes seeing that in the moment and then shifting it to, oh, there's an ethical concern here that I should or could do something about. Right. And it's more important to have that language of that there's something off here than to know, oh, this is a deontological question or, you know, this is um, an, an issue of pragmatist ethics. Like th the label doesn't matter as much as being able to realize that there's a problem and then to think about what what about that experience made you feel a little bit violated in that moment. Um, and so ethics is important. Ethics courses, yeah, take them. But honestly, we know in our everyday experiences what makes something feel off or what makes something feel a little bit wrong. Um, and so the ethics language just helps extend that language in the right direction rather than you know, replacing something that we we really already have a lot of capacity for. Now, with the the dark patterns, uh, did I read somewhere in one of the articles that I 
when I was researching you, um, so I knew who we were talking to. There are five types. You guys classify those as five different duns? Yeah, so we, we actually build on Brignall's work because Brignall had originally proposed about 10 different types of, of patterns. And those are patterns that tended to be very context specific. So like sneak into basket, one of the patterns is very specific to e-commerce. It doesn't really exist anywhere else. And so we wanted to make the human element and the human intent of this very clear. And so we took his 10 strategies. We looked at lots of other sources and we identified five strategies. And these are explicitly strategies that designers take on when they employ dark patterns into their work. Um, and so, and then the patterns aren't context specific either. So these can happen in a wide range of different areas. So nagging, obstruction, sneaking, interface interference, and forced action. All of those can happen in e-commerce environments. They could happen in games. They could happen as you're trying to, you know, get forced to give your data away in a GDPR consent banner. Um, and all of those have some subtypes as well that people can sort of play around with, sort of see what these look like. It's always, okay, so I listen to those nagging, it seems like just kind of pestering someone to do to do something. Yeah. And then uh, obstruction, you said. And so that's like trying to prevent someone from doing something, I assume? So it's trying to make it more difficult than it needs to be. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then yeah. sneaking. So it could be sneaking into basket, yeah. or it could be, you know, making something a little bit smaller so that you're less likely to click on it or notice it. Um, okay. Or it could be um, uh, providing different guidance in the navigation than in what you're actually perceiving as the interaction flow. There are lots of ways of sneaking something past somebody where it's still there if they actually did due diligence, but most people don't have time or energy to do due diligence. Okay. And then uh, you had in interface interference. Yeah, and interface interference is the biggest category by far because most of the dark patterns that have been collected um, are on user interfaces, right? <laughs> so they're, vis they're visible and they're, and they're visual. Um, and so there are a wide range of subtypes that we identified there, but it could be something as simple as uh, pre-selection behavior. So, you know, if something is already selected like as a checkbox, you're very unlikely to uncheck it. Um, yeah. Or it could be, you know, knowledge of uh, Gestalt psychology where we tend to notice the brightest and darkest, the brightest thing on the screen first. And so if you're, the button that you want people to press is bright blue and everything else is light gray, then you're probably going to press the bright, bright blue button. That's interface interference too. Um, we've also seen this with wording, um, which is sort of a mix of a few of these different types. So there's a whole category called confirm shaming, which is essentially making you feel bad about your choice. This, you know, where you're like, well, you'd really be an idiot if you didn't press this button right now and consent to these terms and to join our email list. And that happens all the time. You'll see, you'll see it in lots of different areas where branding experts have gone a little bit too far. And that's also, that could be a form of interface interference, but often it, it plays out in other categories. Um, and then that last one, good. Was that forced action? Yeah, the last one's forced action. Okay. And that's where basically you force somebody into doing something. They don't have a choice. Um, and so some, sometimes this is done in very explicit terms and other other times people actually sort of have to discover that um, this is an issue over a longer period of time. Uh, but essentially you require a user to perform a certain action in order to access some, some, some functionality that they desire. Okay. I feel like you've kind of created these five kind of have created a language to help understand or maybe there weren't ways of understanding this before. It's almost like giving 
words now to understand where some of these behaviors come from. And um, the, oh, I lost the other thing I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, I, I, okay. I remember when, so seeing some of these things online, I, I completely understand what you're saying, but I feel like we've already sort of been trained in other places when we're not online, like we're um, looking at a commercial on TV or, or reading something yeah. and that's not online, like in print or in a magazine, but I feel like it just, for some reason, it, it's like it changes when we get back online. Yeah, is, no, it's, there's absolutely like a context shift thing that happens. And so, you know, a lot of people who try to employ these patterns in digital systems will be like, well, you know, you get manipulated at the grocery store every time you go. And you do, like product placement is everywhere. Yeah. They've determined where to put stuff so that it's more likely that you're gonna pick it up and put it in your cart. Yep. But there's a lot of physical cost associated with that as well. Like if they decide to reinvent a part of the grocery store, they might be spending two or $3 million per location to do that. With digital systems, you could try out, and Facebook does this, you could try out a hundred different experiments a day, optimize for precisely the what, what combination of factors strung together are going to get you the exact result that you need. And so that's where I think it gets really, really problematic because this, it isn't a fair fight anymore. Um, you, you're, not, you're never going to win against algorithms that train and test over a long period of time. You're just one user. Um, these systems are training on millions of users. And it just seems so darn fast, so much faster. You get those. Yeah. Yes, like yes. see that, you know, having people that then can have that understanding and then work that into to the legal side of that, how, how important that probably will be, especially in the future. Yes, no, for sure. And I think we will probably start to see some companies that at least I, this is what I'd like to see is companies that use the fact that they're only using light or bright patterns as a selling point of their services. Oh. I'd love to see that become the case. Mm -hmm. um, and some of this tracking stuff could really shift dramatically in the next few years as well. Um, Apple in their latest iOS release was slated to include a do not track functionality to greatly limit how apps could report back to, um, to other data frameworks. I think it got nixed, but it's gonna come back at some point. And as soon as people start realizing how much they're being tracked, and have a little bit more control on shutting that behavior down, it's going to also force a realignment of the industry. Well, thank you. This, this, is, this is so cool. And I hope everyone that listens is more conscious now about how they're being manipulated, or at least thinks about it so they see more of those. Yeah, this is, it's all around us. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, no, and it's, it's great to find these concepts that actually drive our thinking in lots of different domains of life. Um, and if, if anyone wants to look at uh, these things a little bit more, there is a set of examples, all categorized for you to play around with um, at darkpatterns.uxp2.com. There are all, also a few papers that are linked on there if people want to dig a little bit more deeply. Um, this is a fun enough topic that most people don't mind doing a little bit of reading. Well, awesome. Well, we, we will include that in there, yeah.